Welcome to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like geography, the visual arts, performing arts, storytelling, and literature. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. I'm your host, Ellen Dornan. On this program, we're joined by Daniel Latore, founder and director of The Wise City. Daniel is an advocate for digital placemaking with a focus on community engagement and for city leaders going beyond smart cities. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us today. Most likely in your junior year of high school, you didn't have a teacher that said, hey, I think you have a great mind for digital placemaking. So what was your path that brought you to this work? How did you end up winding your way towards these particular efforts and intellectual inquiries? So I grew up in a multicultural, multiracial, you could say, household where, you know, my father is mestizo Colombian. I was born in Bogota in the center of the city in the Andes Mountains at 2,600 meters. Then we moved to the U.S. because my mother is Norwegian American from northern Minnesota, from a small town. And I grew up in a very high contrast multicultural family. Those are two very different cultures. So then we ended up moving to San Diego. And so it was like in the hills, you know, what to me felt like lots of hiking and walking and picnicking in the hills, or but also a lot of time on the beach. Then we ended up moving to Minneapolis because my mother's side of the family were a species that is in the process of urbanizing. Being very conscious of this, you know, is kind of what made me realize, well, why am I doing this work? And I think it's because I experienced really good urban culture, which is Bogota, like a very vibrant, very social urban city. And then the more not rural, but very environmentally connected, very earthy, connected life like edge of the wilderness kind of thing. Yeah. And then Minneapolis was like suburban Minneapolis, tract housing, like the quote unquote American dream, which to me was very alienating being this international Latino kid. I was so alienated and dejected. I got into punk rock and like the art scene because it spoke to disaffection and this like, wait a minute, this is not quite right. This dream is, is actually a dystopia. So I was politically active as I became an individual in the world in high school. There was the Reagan in Bush in the United States and then the first Iraq war. And because of that, being in a multilingual, multicultural family, I always kind of gravitated towards the arts and culture or what you consider be part of the realm of the humanities. Like I was really into creative writing and ceramics and photography. And my idea at the time was actually communications. To me, there's a very consistent thread. And part of that was being in a house with parents who communicate very differently. I was like, how do we all get along? Because things that are lost in translation within a family, let alone within a neighborhood, within a city, state, country, planet. So I felt that very much at the time. And that was like, well, I want to get good at communications. And now there's this TV and video. And that was before the internet, really. There was just message boards on a modem back then. And I had an uncle who was in software. So I have to give credit to my uncle who was a computer programmer and taught me how to program in basic because he was like, this is the future. And I was kind of like an engineering tinkerer kind of kid in addition to being like an artsy kid. I think maybe because of this multicultural upbringing, I wasn't raised with specialist mentality. Like you must specialize and narrow. 
My father writes poetry and, and likes to draw. When I was a kid, so I'd see him drawing. I'd see my parents reading all the time and debating about the news and, and what do words mean because my father was wanting to understand English vocabulary. So then when I started a university, I was at University of Minnesota where they had Gopher, which was like a pre-web technology. And I was like, this is amazing. This is fascinating. My initial interest was film studies and then media studies. So when the first web browser came out, I was like, oh, so basically this is a global montage where anybody can link to anybody else's image to tell visual storytelling in a living, ever-changing montage. I'm like, this is bigger than the printing press. This is going to change everything. I want to be involved in whatever that is. And so I taught myself how to program because thanks to my uncle, I already had that confidence and that familiarity. And HTML back then was just like peanuts, you know? So then that was it. So it was like this web thing and the politics around that, because by then I was studying cultural studies and anthropology and with a sort of media studies focus in an interdisciplinary program at the University of Minnesota. And we had the University of Minnesota Press, which is huge. So I had found myself in a very special situation. My professor, my mentor that I found after interviewing all of the professors in the cultural studies department, Harvey Sarles, who's an anthropologist in the American descriptive linguistic tradition, which has become one of the disciplines that got blown out by computation and computational linguistics and then technology. Now, thankfully, I would say there's a resurgence in the significance of sociology and anthropology. So then I got a job and I ended up moving to New York and was part of the dot-com explosion in the 90s and that circus of techno-determinism and, and utopianism that I was a part of and benefiting from and kind of, I would say, lost a bit of consciousness from because the money was easy. I was in my 20s and you had all this talk about the end of history, you know, Fukuyama. Then the most important thing of this sort of origin story to tell you is 9-11. So 9-11 happened and it changed my life on every single level. And it made me say, I need to use all this talent that I have, whatever little amount of privilege that I have as a mixed Latino working class, middle-class origin kid with no trust fund, with no safety net, living in a country that doesn't offer a safety net. But I would rather choose to put my talent and effort towards helping make the world be a better place. And actually so, not just in ways that I think and that my ego makes me feel good, did my life make this world a little bit better in some way? That's my underlying motivation. That's what led me to educational technology. And then when I saw all the bike lanes being painted in New York City, I was like, that's interface design. They're changing the interface. What do you mean the bike lanes being painted? Well, you know, here in New York, they started before they built physically separated bike lanes. They just painted green paint on the side of the road to mark this is a space for bikes. And because interface design, like the way we design our apps matters. And so cars wouldn't drive on that area. And there was an affordance for my safety that having ridden a bicycle in New York before that, it was like a extreme sport. And I stopped riding a bicycle because it felt so unsafe because the drivers were so aggressive. It was their space. So the simple act of changing the visual, physical interface of the street and the profound feeling in my body, bringing it back to embodiment, was like my body felt safer, my nervous system was not under threat as much. That was the big aha moment. If we can change where we live, I'd rather use my digital talents to advancing offline benefit rather than the fantasy of a metaverse or some virtual happiness. 
when you take material changes and you're talking about the material change in the equity materially of how cities are divided and allocated for different people for more uses, that to me is way more powerful. And I still think the entire technology culture space and the technical, critical, responsible, ethical technology space, if you're still only focusing on the technology itself and you're not looking at the offline impact of that technology, the material culture, you are, I would say, still on the wrong path. I offer this story because I want to inspire anyone else who may be in similar situations. Like you said, there's a deterministic aspect where we feel like this is inevitable and what are we even going to do about it if Silicon Valley wants to have an AI do all the hiring and firing for the city? Who are we to argue? And how can we argue? And what's even wrong with that? Because I don't know. It seems like part of what you're doing is presenting a model of inquiry and criticism. Anybody can use the model to engage on the topics that matter to them locally, right? Exactly. Yeah. So the bulk of my work has been a mixture of training and capacity building. And that's what a lot of placemaking work is, is we come in and do like demonstration projects. But it's about training the trainers and in building the capacity to then make that your own, right? So what is placemaking and digital placemaking look like in Albuquerque or any other city should, by definition, be contextual to the inclusive, pluralistic needs of the ongoing, ever-changing placeness, right? And then I also do product consulting. So I am hired to help actually lead the development and definition design of products and build product teams to actually make things happening. So for example, right now, I'm working with a startup that is sort of social impact oriented startup that wants to make technology better for older adults, which is the fastest growing demographic. We're all living longer and totally neglected because all this software is not made for them in mind. What does that offer us? What does that mean if we have more older folks? And age doesn't necessarily guarantee wisdom, but it definitely has the capacity for deeper reflection and historical oral traditions and truth-telling about where we've been. But all of these sorts of things, these cultural dynamics in the question of how we use technology or what should technology be for, it's like uncharted territory. And to me, there is like an ethical need and benefit or import to this sort of thinking about the culture in time space. Because right now, so much of our technology and all of the focus is on the youth, right? Technology for the innovation is coming from the young kids and TikTok and blah, blah, blah. So there is already kind of acknowledgement that the young users are leading to innovative ideas or experimental directions that aren't being thought of because they've grown up immersed in that media ecology. I mean, and that really gives me a lot of pause because it's like the technology that we currently have in our society as dominated and largely defined and dictated by Silicon Valley libertarians is toxic by and large. I am not wanting to offer any sort of easy answer about the future, but I do believe from what I am seeing in every generation right now is there are more people than ever that are wanting to ask or face the difficult questions. If you think about the debates right now with critical race theory and like having our actual education system be a truer representation of our history, because absolute truth is not possible, but that doesn't mean it's all relative, right? So there are these movements that are happening in the environmental movement, in the racial justice movement, in the feminist movement, in the economic justice movements. There's all these small and large organizing efforts that are happening that are growing in momentum. But because they're coming from, I would say, a much more grounded and pluralistic perspective, 
It is not offering easy answers. It's a multilateral mosaic of many impacts. And so what I would offer to listeners is get involved, is organize and connect. And there are people that are looking for that. And none of us can go through this alone. That's the only way we're going to get through this is together. This whole idea that we're polarized to me is a whole other thing that I question. I, do, I don't believe that that is an accurate framing of what's going on. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, a lot of gratitude here as well. And if you would like more information about Daniel and his work, you can visit thewisecity.org. That's all one word, no spaces, thewisecity.org. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klomner.